My name is Wamish Hamilton, and this is Tobacco Nation. Tobacco Nation is a four-part documentary radio series brought to you by the First Nations Health Authority. In each episode, we'll feature stories about tobacco told by First Nations people living in BC. First Nations peoples in BC are about twice as likely to smoke as the general population. And when you ask them about smoking, you'll hear stories about colonialism, stories about family, and stories about triumphing over adversity. And these are the stories you're going to hear on this show. This is the first episode in the series, Cancer. In 2005, you mentioned something significant happened. When you started, when you just started work, could you tell me about that? So in 2005, I started at Health Canada, First Nation in Health Branch, the regional operations in Vancouver, and um, started the first week in October and uh, had found out on the very first day at work that my, my dad had landed up in the hospital back home. This is Joe Gallagher. Today, Joe is the CEO of the First Nations Health Authority, but back in 2005, he was just starting his career in healthcare. The first part of the conversation was just that dad was sick and he was in the hospital. It was a, it was a conversation of trying to figure, well, how sick is he? What's going on? Has he got a bad cold? You know, was, I mean. But Joe was worried it might be something much worse than a cold. He was worried it might be cancer. Kind of, you have that, that feeling that kind of sinks you into your chair and you stop and 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 you're just kind of wondering and you're waiting to hear the C word. Um, but it didn't come out right away, but it came out pretty shortly thereafter. It was unbelievable to me that by the time I got that call early in the week to the time I got home a day or two later that it was he was already in a coma. I had no understanding that it would go that fast. Joe's father passed in 2005. Almost exactly a year later, Joe is playing a friendly game of soccer, and he notices something different about himself. Yeah, I, re- I remember just feeling, you know, because you're, you're just trying to be out there to, to, to do the drills and to play in the scrimmages, and you just had no energy, had no sort of, you know, get up and go and wind. And I found it funny because I was, um, the season starts in September, so I had played a couple months and I never experienced that. I thought I was just overcome with anxiety or something. He's thinking about his dad, and he's worried. So Joe goes to the doctor, and the doctor gives him a battery of tests. They still can't figure it out. Then she orders a colonoscopy. It was something that I needed to do, so I was prepared to do it. To prepare for the procedure, Joe's doctor sends him home with some medications. These will clean out his system. In you go first thing the next morning, I was told it would be about a be out for about fifteen minutes because they were were going to put me out for it. And um, then a couple hours later, I was to to wake up and in the recovery room and be able to to head home after that. So that was what I was expecting. Uh, 
um, and uh, they had had found uh, I had very large polyps, uh, and they had tried to remove all of them at the time while I was in there. So it, it was a procedure that went a lot longer, and they took samples of what they removed and sent them for testing uh, to see what was going on. A couple of weeks later, the tests come back. Positive. There are cancer cells. That was a pretty big deal. I was um, really kind of shocked around that. Um, I was scared. Um, I think for for me, when I un- I understood that I had cancer, um, the first thing that goes went through my mind is is who's going to take care of my son if I'm not here, and am I going to live? The doctor tells Joe that they need to go inside and get the cancer cells out of his colon. Then they'll be able to figure out how far it spread, how bad it really is. Uh, after the procedure, they had told me they didn't find it anywhere else, which was a big relief. Um, the the um, doctor that performed the colonoscopy, though, in reporting that out to me, um, you know, did tell me that I was lucky and that if I had you know, waited, you know, anywhere up to another three to six months, I might have been in big trouble. So when was the moment when you found out that you were fully okay? I don't, I don't know if you're ever fully okay, because the likelihood of it coming back is always there. Um, I think you survive. Um, I think what happens is you, you develop an approach to living where you do the best you can to prevent it from happening if you can. Joe says that his story shows the importance of early detection. Why is testing so critical? Testing is is extremely important, especially um, regular screening to have early detection so that you can actually address an issue before it gets out of hand. That was totally the situation that I encountered. Um, I was able to, to catch a situation with colon cancer at an early stage so that a surgical intervention actually addressed the situation. And that was basically a procedure that saved my life. What what do you hope for by sharing your story? I hope that um, First Nations people and leaders recognize that it happens to all of us. And I know that we know that because we've seen it. Um, But I think that hopefully what it will do is try and help create a sense that we should talk about it earlier, that we should talk about it in advance of it actually happening, that we should work together to support one another to try and find the best way forward for each of us on our own health and wellness journey to tackle something like screening. Because each of our stories are are our own stories and they're different, but I want to be able to create a space where we could talk about it before it's too late. Joe is a big believer in the power of story. Stories teach us about the world around us. They show us the proper way to do things. They give us strength. They can heal. That's what we want to explore through this series. The next story we have for you is Randall Stevens. I did my first jump uh, in uh, Edmonton, 
up at uh, uh, CFB uh, Mayo. There's somebody there that tells you, okay, you'll be going up uh, in, in, in a stick of six men. There'll be three planes. Uh, we'll leave at so-and-so time. Uh, in the meantime, we'd sit around, we'd be smoking, we'd be chit-chatting, we'd be pretty ner nervous. I think we all showed that and uh, uh, pretended to not really care. <laughs> <laughs> We made the slow climb up and around. There was no door on the plane, so we were sit sitting there on the plane and there was snow on the ground and we were all pushed back to the back. So, and it was cool. The wind whipped inside the plane and as we went around, we shook with cold, but I guess there was a little bit of anxiety too. Uh, I must have been about third or fourth. Uh, I didn't want want to be first. I wanted to watch the first guy go out. I wanted I wanted to to see him jump, and uh, and uh, then that would give me a sense. Okay, if he goes, I'm going. <laughs> when I when it came to my turn, it goes so fast that you almost have to touch the next man as you shuffle along on your on your butt towards the door, and your hands, and you're pushing, and you're going. You push yourself away and you just suddenly just drop. You find yourself in air and you're talking to yourself and you're saying, keep my head in, keep my arms in, tucked in. And I look, looked at my eyes, my eyes could look down on the ground and I could see that ground coming up on me. And I'm counting 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. On the corner of my eye, I'm looking out across, out in the space, and I could see the checkerboard square of all the land, and I could see the snow, I could see the tree lines. This all of these, this took just one split second, but this was all in my head, and I can play it like a, like a, like a two-hour hour show. By that time, you can feel that tug on your, tug on your sh shoulders, and you look up and. You see your shoot nice and round and full. And I believe I, I give out a great big laugh to myself and I said, airborne, yeah, I love this. <laughs> uh, all day my dad had been waiting to hear from me, so I had my mother. I waited till late. The day back then, you had to wait till past six o'clock because of the rates were cheaper, and the phone service back then was was pretty pretty expensive. So I had to call uh, past six. When I had called, my mother picked up the phone. I said something like, "Hey, how's it going?" And she was she was a big relief for her to hear my voice. My father had been up all night the night before. He had been up all night worried, and then he was up all the day waiting for that call. And I said to him, uh, I jumped, I jumped twice today, it was great. And, and my dad says, oh, I'm glad you didn't freeze in the door. And he was trying, he was trying to show that he didn't really care, you know. <laughs> uh, 
His name was Oliver. He was born in the bush. He grew up, uh, joined the army. The army had brought him up to a, a low-level grade eight. They they made they taught him how to read and how to write. He went to Korea uh, in. Uh, during the Korean War and served there, and I'm not exactly too sure he wouldn't say much about it. When I was a, a young boy, I recall my dad coming home from, from Korea. It was probably the first time that I had seen my dad. I think I was a little a little afraid, afraid of this man because uh, I hadn't I hadn't seen him. I think uh, this strange man was there and. Uh, I think I was told this is your your dad, and it had quite an impact. As a young boy, um, in 1959 or so, 58 or so, I would recall I would have to um, uh, have a note from him to go to the store to pick him up a pack of smokes and I think back then smokes were something like 12 cents a pack I, I recall as I got up in years when they went up uh, 14 cents 16 cents he, he would say he would say to my mom when they reach 18 cents I'm gonna quit I've had enough of this <laughs> He, he never knew where his smokes were. He'd be looking around for them, and uh, if I took one or two, it wouldn't, he wouldn't miss it. I started uh, when I was about 12 year, years old. I was smoking with some friends on the street by chance. My dad came by and <laughs> caught three or three of us <laughs> on the street smoking. <laughs> Uh, so you like smoking? I said, no, of course, you know. And he said, I want you to sit down here. I'm going to make you smoke until you get sick. So I sat down and I had smoked about three or four smokes. And as I as I would butt one out, a new new one was put in my mouth, smoke it again. Anyway, I said, yeah, okay, Dad, but, you know. <laughs> I got sick, but I did, didn't quit. I don't know if I took my cue from him, but he he would smoke every 20 minutes. He'd have a smoke in his hand. I seemed to pick up on that, and I started to smoke just as much. I was a hard smoker. I was uh, up to about two and a half packs a day. I smoked uh, all during the day. He had gone through some sickness, and I think that's how they found out. He had gotten some kind of rash on his arm, and they did some tests. And he didn't think much of it. And he said, I've had these spots on my wrist come and go for the last six months. And uh, I didn't know know it. He didn't know it. But uh, I guess the do doctors had 
done some tests and, and that was their, their uh, clue. When he got the word and found out that uh, he had lung ca can cancer, uh, I was not at home at the time, but I heard most of this from my mother and they said, yeah, it hit him hard. Uh, and he asked if he, if he quit smoking this very minute, right now, will it help me? And the doc doctor said no. We tried, you know, it's so funny when, when one, one is um, uh, not wanting to know how sick they are, how much you try to avoid that talk. He played it all off like he was just uh, not young anymore. He used that as a term for for his ill illness. He played it off as, well, son, I'm just not that young guy anymore, you know, he'd say. <laughs> We went uh, down south. Uh, we went to San Fran, around there. Um, he could pick up and leave, and uh, if I asked him, well, let's go, let's go someplace, and let's go and see what's here and there, whatever, and he'd say, yeah, let's do it, you know? So we were, he was looking for a, a, perhaps a, a shot at uh, giving back to his old self. He had these little hopes and dreams that Perhaps I'm not as sick as, as they say. Did I kind of recognize that uh, that uh, he was on his on his last um, way out? I mean, I think there would have been a, a part of me that did want to say that, but then there was the part of me that was in de denial too. We both tra traveled in sol solitude. We would kind of just uh, uh, keep quiet. We, I'm sure he, we had his thoughts. I had mine. You know, he probably thought about things that were going on with his health, health as much as I would think about how much was going in his health. We were just, words were not said. Yeah, we went further south. We went down, we stopped in a little town called Low Lodi. And of course, the biggest tune on that, uh, on the jukebox in the bar was, here I am stuck in Low Lodi again. But it was playing on that and both dead that night. We thought, oh, this is, this is kind of neat. Here, here we are, we're sitting in the bar and we're thinking of a plan, you know, and wondering if we should carry on or not. Uh, I think what my dad really taught me was to be a realist. Face, face what, face what you have in life and, and, uh, have a certain degree of hope because I think we all need to have hope. But when uh, when that hope fades away, you have to you have to face realities.
just making plans. We were sitting there. We were thinking about if to go on or not, and we decided not to. As I watched him lose weight, as he as he got really ill, it was in the last uh, few months of his life. He went. It uh, the ca- ca- cancer had spread, and it started. It began to eat him alive. It's so funny that we would both go out to the uh, sm- smoking pa- patio of the hall hospice that he was staying in and there we him and I we'd light up our smokes and sit there and ca- ca- casually talk see he smoked right till uh, till the day he died or, or you know he was he was in very very bad shape and he would still with his last effort get up out of bed and go out to the smoking room to have a smoke. Even in his last days, uh, his his addiction was much strong, stronger than his his will to live. And as I watched him lose his weight, and uh, he couldn't even get up without without help. I uh, I just knew. I thought to myself, oh man, I don't want to go like this. <laughs> it took me uh, several months to stop, but it wasn't until uh, my father started to, uh, to fade away did I really get to, that it really did hit home that, uh, that I need to quit and I need to quit now. I claimed his ashes and I kept kept it. And it was in a brown urn and I put an eight, eight by 10 uh, picture of him pasted on the front of this urn. And on top of the urn, I put his hat. And it was just a little white, white little cap. One morning, uh, I got up and I looked across the room, my eyes could see dad's urn there and on top of this top of his hat I could see see this white thing I didn't know what it was I got up off my chair I walked towards his urn and on top of his hat was a smoke and I had quit since then it was four or five five years had passed and I, I had quit smoking and no one else in the house smoked and there on Dad's, Dad's hat was this smoke. That was my sign. That was my sign. That was my sign, the smoke on top of his hat. And there was no smoke in the house, and I knew right then and there that there is life beyond, beyond this earth. But also, the sign reinforced the, I mean, the cigarette on top of his hat is what killed him. That just reinforced the, the sign. It was um, 
March of two year, years ago, I was, I went to the uh, cl clinic as I waited in the uh, way waiting room for the re results. The doctor came out and he said, he called, called me aside. We stepped in, into the jan janitorial room. It was a small room, uh, it was dark, very dim, dimly lit with one little bulb. I could see around me and it was tight that there was a, there was some mops and there was some, uh, some, uh, To toilet supplies and soap and uh, bob boxes and uh, uh, mops and things like that. And as we stood there, and it was very small, we stood there, he said, I'm sorry, I have to tell you this. And he says, I'm sorry, but you know, I have to do this here. I got no place. This is what he said. I have no place to tell, tell you this. It's all all, all, all my rooms are being, uh, being, uh, oh, oh. Occupied, and he said, uh, "I have bad news for you. You have ca cancer. It's in the it's in your col colon. Uh, you have uh, ca cancer, and it's in 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 a late stage." He said, "He said, can you right now?" He said, "Can you right now march yourself oh, over to the e emergency?" emergency room and check yourself in. And I said, well, yeah, I guess so, Doc, you know. I'll... I uh, got um, into the operating room at six o'clock at night. I had to move from what they wheeled me into onto the table and that and that thing is cold. It's just it's a it's a stainless steel slab. <laughs> anyway, it was cold. And I said they said, uh, okay, we're gonna give give you something to sleep and uh, you won't feel it and everything else and I was sitting there waiting for it and uh, that was the last thing I know. I don't even know when they put it in my arm. I was gone. And I, I found myself coming to, and uh, I could hear somebody call, calling my name. And they're saying, Mr. Stevens, Mr. Stevens. I'm looking, uh-huh, uh-huh, and I'm looking, and I look across, and there's the dog, dog doctor, and he's sitting beside my, my bed. And he says, I've got some good news for you, and I've got some bad, bad news. And I'm not anywhere near coming out of this stuff and I'm saying, yeah, uh -huh, okay, yeah, what? He said, the good news is uh, we didn't have to put a bag on you. He said, the bad news is uh, it has now spread to your li liver and you're in stage four. He says, uh, if I were you, he said, uh, do you have any plans? He said, to, to um, do you have some, something that you would like to do in your life? And I said, I'm sitting there going, uh-huh. He said, uh, he said, I would make plans to do do them now. You don't have much time. That was it. So uh, as much as I can re-recall of that talk, and then he left. My father's death laid 
laid down the groundwork of what I'm what I'm expected to see for myself. But it's, you know, what uh, I learned I learned to uh, face my own death with courage, the way my father displayed it with me. I'm going to prove these guys wrong. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to live more than what they give me. I'm I'm bound. I'm just I'm the that's some some something else. I'm, I have I'm stubborn. Uh, you tell tell me it can't it can't it can't be done. I'll go out and prove prove to you it can. <laughs> I'm, I'm in terminal cancer right now. I'm, I still work. I work part time. I do my do my uh, chemotherapy. I don't let it get me down. I keep a positive attitude. I move towards change. I I live for today, and I, I I work around those things, and I help myself along, and uh, show them that hey, you know, don't quit here. Just keep right on going, and make a change here and there to help yourself along. Cancer is an educator. It's a dig dig disease, but it gives you a chance when you have it. You can go two ways with it. You can eat. Either go the self-pity route, or you can take it on and learn from it. Let it let it teach you what what you don't know about yourself. Find your strengths, find your weakness, find your find your soul, find your your spirituality, find uh, find out what those words like hope really 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 mean. Randall Stevens is 64 years old. He says he's planning on spending his final days traveling around BC, enjoying nature, and visiting family. We'll be back in one minute. Welcome back to Tobacco Nation. I'm Wami Shamilton. We just heard a story told by Randall Stevens. Randall is living with colon cancer. To find out more about the connection between colon cancer and smoking, our producer Gordon Caddick called Nadine Carone. My name is Nadine Carone. I'm Anishinaabe. I live up in Prince George, British Columbia, and uh, have the wonderful honor of being a physician and surgeon up here. Nadine went to med school at the University of British Columbia. As she got closer to graduating, Nadine realized that she was in a unique situation. She was going to be the first Indigenous woman to graduate from UBC Medical School. For Nadine, that distinction came with extra pressure. I I didn't want to just scrape by. I didn't want to just survive medical school or just get through residency. 
Um, I wanted to excel. I wanted to be the best that I could be. I wanted to enjoy every minute, and I didn't want to succumb to the pressure, but rather thrive in it. Uh, at no point did I ever uh, stand to represent any specific group, but at the same time, you, you can't help but wonder who are you going to let down if you don't make it. Nadine says she had to fight stereotypes, both about herself and about her patients. It's safe to say she made a big difference in that fight. Um, I've had people that when they realize that I'm First Nations break down in tears immediately and say that they never thought they'd see the day that they would uh, be able to walk into a room and talk to a First Nations physician or healthcare provider. I've seen grandmas cry to say that now they realize that they're going to leave the world in a place where the generations that follow them will have opportunities that they knew they never had. There's a lot of things that increase your risk for colon cancer. If anyone in your family has had it, being overweight, not exercising enough, or drinking too much alcohol. Nadine says another surprising item on that list is smoking. For years now, we've known that smoking is a risk for lung cancer. So, oh, you know, be careful if you smoke, you're at higher risk for lung cancer. But it was a real shock when all of a sudden that data started to show, well, wait a second, not only are you at risk of lung cancer, but you're also at risk for things like colon cancer. Now, it might take years, it might take decades, but if you smoke for many, many years, and depending on how much you smoked in those years, eventually you're putting your body at risk for other cancers, including colon cancer. It's a little bit hard to, to wrap your head around, I think. This is our producer, Gordon Caddick. But, like, what is the relationship between smoke going into your lungs and colon cancer? Like, why would those two things be related? Yeah, um, the toxins that these cigarettes contain, they, they don't all get filtered out right at the lungs, so only the lungs at risk. And so you breathe it in, and it goes into the bloodstream. And the oxygen is going into your lungs, not because your lungs need oxygen, of course they do, but so do your toes and so your fingers and your brain and your heart. Whatever goes in through your lungs, meaning the oxygen, goes to your whole body. So what does at-risk really mean? Like, like, I just want to get a sense of the magnitude. Does smoking significantly increase your risk of colon cancer? You know, the thing is, it doesn't happen right away, so it's hard to really kind of show. It doesn't work that quickly, so it's hard to show that causation. It's sort of like you smoked, but you were also overweight and also not very physically active. You didn't have a great diet. You ate a lot of processed meat. That's what's challenging about cancer risks. Uh, I sort of describe it almost like a puzzle. Each one is a piece of the puzzle. And if you put all the puzzle together, you can get a really good picture of what that puzzle is about. And you can see the whole thing. The other part of it is also the ability to do screening programs. Colon cancer that's detected early has a way better chance of having a whole list of types of treatments that you can have that can actually cure the, the cancer. What about you? Have, have you ever been tested? Yes, I have. Oh, how is that? Pipes are clear. <laughs> Great. Well, I haven't been tested. Um, it's primarily for people between, I guess, the ages of 50 and 74, Nadine says. But there may be reasons to, to get it done earlier. W- Wamish, why did you get it done earlier? I'm 50. 
<laughs> you don't look 50. Thank you. Um, so, I, don't, I don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nadine tells me that if you haven't been tested, talk to your doctor. Even if you don't have any symptoms, colon cancer is one of the most deadly and dangerous cancers. It's also one of the most common. But if you detect it early, it is treatable. That's why getting tested is so important. And that does it for our program today. If you're ready to quit commercial tobacco, but don't know where to start, check out the First Nations Health Authority's Tobacco Timeout Challenge. It's a 24-hour quit challenge taking place on the first Tuesday of every month. Sign up at tobaccotimeout.ca, quit for 24 hours, and be entered for the chance to win a $250 cash prize. You can also call the Quit Now helpline for free 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The number is 1-877-455-2233. That number again, 1-877-455-2233. You can also reach them online at quitnow.ca. They're even on Facebook. If you like today's show, there are several other episodes about smoking. You can listen to all of them for free right now at www.fnha.ca. My name is Wamish Hamilton. Thanks for listening.